0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Catherine, who's going to talk to us about her journey through mental health and what her journey looks like now. Hi, Catherine.
1: Hi. Ha- so nice how- to see you.
0: <laughs> how are you?
1: I'm doing well.
0: Good. And just before we get officially started, I always like to ask my guest where they are coming from.
1: I am in Sacramento, California, the so Northern California.
0: Oh, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's pretty nice, but it's 111 degrees this weekend. So, uh, you know.
0: <laughs> beautiful to an extent. <laughs>
1: I'm dreaming of beaches is what I am.
0: <laughs> Isn't there a lot of beaches there?
1: I'm in where... California, but where I am, I'm more, I'm more central Valley. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of rivers.
0: So maybe you need to go hit up a beach this weekend.
1: I'm going to do that exactly tomorrow morning. I'm going down to San Francisco.
0: (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Catherine, we are ready to jump into your story and your experiences whenever you're ready to share with us.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm really excited to share my story. And I think when I think about what I do, so I'm a coach and a yoga teacher I host an online membership-based studio where I teach yoga. I help people with self-development and I teach yoga and teach people about the inner shadow. And so it's one of those, the reason I started with what I do is because it's one of those things where your life, in some ways, your biggest wounds and your biggest hurts end up developing who you become as an adult and how you express yourself in the world. And so these two components of yoga and inner shadow development, which I will explain a little bit more, um, were tools that I came to. I tried a different, a lot of different modalities to help support my mental health and my evolution. And those are the tools that I found that were the most productive for me. And so I'll go back into, you know, back in the early 70s when I was born. Uh, I was living in Las Vegas with my mother and my dad and my older brother. And my mother uh, had ALS, so she had Lou Gehrig's disease. And so when I was a child, I didn't really understand that she was dying. I thought that that's just kind of how she was. She was different. She was in a wheelchair, and then eventually she was paraplegic. And what happens when you have a parent who is suffering from really crippling illness like ALS, is normally the person who's supposed to be your caretaker now is the one that has most of the needs. And so your needs really get set aside. So I um, you know, was raised in, in my family. My dad was not really emotionally equipped to deal with what was happening in the household. So he was gone a lot. So it was essentially just me, my brother. I was eight years old when she passed away. My brother was nine. And it was essentially just the two of us in the house uh, with my mom, who was very sick. And so when you have an an adult parent whose needs are more important than yours, you get this mindset that your needs are not important. And so what I really adopted was this identity that I had to be very self-reliant and that I was on my own. Her death was a huge shock to me because, like I said, I wasn't expecting um, her illness, to be something that killed her. I thought it was just her. I thought that's just how she was. So I was very shocked when she passed away at that time, nobody was telling children, you know, we didn't really, they didn't really share with kids what's going on in their lives. And so my father couldn't take care of us. So he sent us to go live with extended family members in uh, San Francisco. And so my brother and I were sent uh, to live with um, extended family members who were very loving, We got private school education. We lived in a beautiful house. But because of their upbringing and the way that they were, you know, in the world, there wasn't a lot of space for our emotions. Um, There was no guidance around how to grieve or what was going on. There was no real acceptance of how to grieve. And so because I was in such a state of shock, I basically disassociated. I turned into myself and I shut down. I learned very quickly that I wasn't allowed to be angry. I wasn't allowed to be sad. I had to be grateful. This is a phrase that was given to me all the time. If I would act out because I had all these emotions that I didn't know what to do with, the common phrase was, I don't know why you're so upset. You should be grateful that you're not in an orphanage. You should be grateful that you're living here. And so that was like a real collision in my mind of like what I was actually feeling and what I thought I was supposed to be feeling or supposed to be experiencing. And because when you're being raised by a a family that you're not the child of, there's always this mindset that we could easily be sent off to an orphanage. We could easily be, easily be sent out of the house. So we had to make sure that we were on our best behavior.
0: Did they ever threaten that to you? Or was that just kind of in the back of your mind?
1: There was definitely like a slight comments about it like you should be grateful. You could be in an orphanage right now. Or like one time I got into a fight with, with one of the members, it was three women that were raising us. And uh, one time I got into a fight with one of them and she said, I could easily just call, you know, foster care if you want to do that instead. So it was, it was something that they didn't use a lot, but it was something that hung over us. And so my brother, he basically went out into the world and just worked and made money so that he could build enough wealth so that he could get out and be on his own and not ever be dependent on anybody. But for me, I really turned into myself. There was, you know, he was allowed to be mad and angry because he was a boy. I was not allowed to be mad and angry. So they decided that I was going to go to therapy and they didn't send him to therapy. And so the way that I interpreted that is if I'm the only one going to therapy, then there's something really wrong with me because I'm having these emotions. I'm not supposed to have these emotions. I should be grateful. I better be a good girl. I better not act out because there's a lot of threat that's happening to my survival. Like I'm too young to go live off on my own. I'm eight years old, right? And so it's not like I was consciously thinking about those things. But now when I look back, I can see how my life path was developed based on these mindsets I had about who I was supposed to be and who I thought I was not allowed to be. So then fast forward, I get into my teenage years and uh, one of my good girlfriends, I had a lot of really great friends that I hung out with. I really developed a strong friendship community. And one of them introduced me to Coke and different types of drugs, stimulants in particular. And so I started doing a lot of drugs. So from the time that I was about, sophomore in high school till about 23 years old I was a very active drug user and now I look back and I think there's a reason that I was attracted to those stimulants I had cut off so much of my emotional center as a child that I think that there was a part of me an unconscious part of me that was trying to feel myself again I was trying to feel emotions and there was something about these stimulants that allowed me to feel my heart beating and I felt exhilarated and then I felt down. Like I was able to actually feel emotion even though it was very extreme emotions. And so I, at, um, when I graduated from high school, my family was basically like, okay, we did our duty. Now go, go out into the world. And so that was a very scary thing for me. I was doing a lot of drugs at the time. I was very lost. I didn't know who I was. I, did, I was in San Francisco, which all of a sudden fe- felt like this really big scary town to me. And so I moved in with my boyfriend I had at the time, and we were together for 11 years. He was a really nice guy. And there was something about the security of him that made me feel like I could survive in this city. We both did a lot of drugs together. The problem was I didn't really know who I was at this time, not like a lot of people do at this age, but I was so shut down emotionally. I had no access to my emotional center, and I had no access to how I felt about anything in terms of how I, what my opinion was, what I wanted, what my needs were. All of that stuff had been so cut off in my childhood that by the time I became an adult in my 20s, I was a shell of myself. I didn't know what feelings were I didn't really have any body awareness. I didn't, you know, I was super passive aggressive in my relationship. I thought that I was supposed to be even tempered all the time and being low maintenance was the most important thing that I could be. So whatever I could do to not rock the boat would be great. Well, the problem is being in a relationship with somebody like that, you don't really know who you're dealing with. So my boyfriend would get really frustrated with me because I wasn't sharing any of myself with him. And part of that is because I didn't know who I was. And so by the time I got into my late twenties, I, I had uh, started this, this um, corporate job around 23, 24. And it was really that corporate job that helped me get off of the drugs because there was so much pressure in this job to stay focused. And it was so above and my capabilities at the time. I had just lucked out and gotten into, um, got this position that that is essentially what caused me to stop drugs because I needed to be more focused and I knew that this was a lifeline for me. So I did this job for a while, it did not suit me. It was totally not what I wanted to do. And then by the time I was around 27, 28, I was walking with a friend of mine and I said, I think that I might be apathetic. I jumped out of an airplane at 14,000 feet the week before and I felt nothing. When I landed on the field, I looked over at my friend that had jumped just a few minutes before me and she was jumping up and down so excited. And I remember the moment of feeling that I had to pretend that I was excited so it didn't seem weird. And so I was jumping up and down and running to her and hugging her. But then when I drove home, I remember feeling really scared by the fact that I just jumped out of an airplane (laughs) and felt nothing. And so I was walking with a friend a few days later and told him this story. And I said, I think I might be apathetic. And he said, I think it's time for you to go to a therapist. And so I called up the therapist that he recommended and told him I'm coming because I think I might be apathetic. And so I started doing talk therapy with this guy. The thing is, is that he kept asking me how I felt in my body. And I had no association to my body. So I didn't understand what he was talking about. So I would try to explain things to him, but I had no connection to what I was feeling. So I was just basically like BSing him. And then at one point, he suggested I try yoga. So I started going to yoga. And for some reason, I wasn't a very physically active person. I was a smoker at the time. I drank a lot at the time. And I went into this first yoga class and I remember sweating and being really uncomfortable and just kind of hating it. But for some reason, a couple of days later, I went back again. And so I started practicing yoga on a regular basis. And I remember about six months into practicing, I was walking up a hill from the yoga studio to my house. And all of a sudden, I noticed the feeling of my legs feeling really strong walking up, you know, the steep hills in San Francisco. I don't know if you've been there, but the hills are very steep. And so I was walking up the steep hill, and I could feel my legs. And I was like, God, my legs are so strong, the way that they're carrying me up this hill. And I got to the top of the hill, and I could feel my heartbeat. And all of a sudden, I felt joy. And I thought, I don't know if I've ever felt this before without some sort of stimulant. Wow. And so then I got really interested in yoga. And so I started doing it more and more and more. And but I was still having all of these weird ways of dealing with relationship. I was closed down. I still couldn't share myself with people. I didn't know how to engage on a real emotional intimate level with other people. I thought I did, but I really didn't. I didn't know. I was very guarded. And I kept hearing from people, you're very guarded. And I didn't understand that. And so then when I went back to school, I didn't go to college until I was 30. I went back to school and I was introduced to Carl Jung and this idea of the inner shadow. Um, I was still doing talk therapy, but I just felt like it wasn't really doing much for me. But when I was introduced to the inner shadow, I was so fascinated by this idea that there's parts of us that we don't know. It was mind blowing to me to think of that because we think we know ourselves so well. But the reality is there's so much of ourselves that we are hiding from ourselves because either, you know, we're scared of it. We were told at one point it wasn't allowed. For instance, when I was younger and I had anger, or if I was sometimes, you know, acting out, I was told that this wasn't allowed. So I created this identity of this good girl and this girl who's going to be really even tempered. So that I could be accepted because there was a lot of of, um, risk in my childhood of being thrown out and so I worked really hard unconsciously to create a persona a way to present myself that seemed like the most agreeable for the people around me and what happened is it leaves out the rest of me right and so the poet Robert Bly when he talks about shadows so shadows are the parts of us that we abandon and say that that's not me. And so Robert Bly says that we all carry this invisible bag behind us. And as we grow up, we're taking fragments of ourselves and putting them in these shadow caves in the invisible bag behind us. Cause we don't want anyone to see these parts of us that by the time we're in high school, this invisible bag is miles long behind us with all these parts we've rejected of ourselves.
0: So these parts that we reject of ourselves, are they, are they more so, like our past traumas or are they just anything and everything that we don't like about ourselves?
1: It's, it's identity. It's feeling like, so for me, one of my shadows, <clears throat> excuse me, was my body was emotion because I was not allowed to feel grief. I was only allowed to feel gratitude. The problem is when you cut off one part, you cut off all parts. So that's where the apathy started to come in. It's like, you, my, I'm not going to know if I can't feel joy and not feel rage. Like the the part that gives me the feeling for both of those is from the same place, right? So um, if I am being a bad girl and I'm being told you're being a bad girl, this behavior makes you a bad girl, then I'm not going to do that behavior. And I'm going to tell myself I'm not the type of person that would do that behavior. And so I'm going to tell myself that I'm a good girl. For me, by the time I got in high school, I think part of the drug use was feeling myself again, but it was also, there was so much of me that hated who I was because I was told when I was younger that the way that I was being was wrong. And because it was such a threat to my livelihood, to my safety and my security, I had to work really hard to hide those, those parts of myself and what happens is after time i'm hiding those parts of myself from me too it's like you start to believe the story but by the time i'm in high school i'm thinking god it's just and you're not thinking it consciously you just feel wrong you just know that something is wrong and the shadow mindset is designed by this idea that there is a right way to be and there is a wrong way to be when in the reality You get to be all things. So doing shadow discovery, shadow awareness is learning that you actually are all things. You're a good girl. You're a bad girl. For me, I was a drug addict. I was a sober, you know, like I, you're allowed to be everything when you start to reveal your shadows, but it takes a little while because you think that it's the worst possible thing in the world. Like if you think about what's the worst possible thing in the world for you to be, that's the place that you really want to dig into when you're doing shadow discovery, because when you can start to look at why you think it's the worst possible thing, and then usually you can trace it back to something that happened in your childhood. For me, my a relative of mine told me this story recently where she said that when I was six years old, she came to Las Vegas to visit us to see how my mom was doing. And she said, she walked into the house and there were footstools all over the house and everything that should be in the cupboards were all on the tabletops. So in the kitchen, all of the pots and pans, everything was on the, um, the tabletops. And then in the laundry room, all the laundry detergent, everything was at tabletop level was footstools around. And she soon realized that was because my brother and I had to be able to reach everything to do everything because we were doing it on our own. And so when I heard her tell that story to me, I remembered, oh, yeah, I mean, we used to make all of our breakfast, we used to do all of our laundry, I'm six years old, there's nobody in the house to do this. And so subconsciously, I learned that it's more valuable to be self-reliant than it is to be needy. If I acted out, then it was a big pain in the butt for my mother and any other caretakers that were her, there for her. She had more needs than I had at that time. You know, she was, had wet her pants sometimes. She would fall out of her wheelchair sometimes. That required a lot more attention than what I needed at that moment, or so I thought. The reality is that it, we should have both been taken care of. And so I grow up thinking the worst thing that I could possibly be to anybody is needy. I don't want to be high maintenance. I'm going to be even tempered. I'm going to be low maintenance. I'm going to give a lot to my relationships, but I'm not going to share how I feel really about any of it. And that becomes a very dangerous place to be because then I'm in my relationships. I'm resentful. I'm angry. I'm unhappy. And nobody knows why, including myself. (laughs) <laughs> so, I just so, throw a lot at you.
0: Sorry, I'm trying to process. So that essentially is a trauma response then, right?
1: Yeah, I guess you would call it that.
0: And so would inner shadow be a trauma response as well?
1: Yeah, I think of it like, more as like a survival response. But yeah, I, okay. I, I'm a little, I'm a little um, hesitant to, to use the word trauma But only because I'm not a trauma therapist. Um, But yeah, I mean, essentially, that was a trauma of mine when I was a child. And then so I created a story that allowed me to survive within that environment.
0: And so how were you able to maneuver not wanting to be needy, but having your needs met?
1: Well, so the thing about this is basically shadows are the thing that we don't know about ourselves that cause friction in our lives. So what happened is as an adult in the relationships that I was in, there was a lot of friction. I felt resentful a lot. People did not feel connected to me. People didn't understand. I remember getting a friend and I getting into an argument or she was you know, yelling at me about something and I was just being super cool and calm because that's how I always was. And she said, You need to learn how to be mad. You need to learn how to be mad about something. And, uh,
0: but would that create like a, almost a conflict in your mind when you were told to be grateful and not angry? And then now somebody's telling you that you need to learn to be mad?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I had no idea what she was talking about. I thought she was just trying to. I don't know. I didn't understand why she would try to bring that out of me. I mean, it was something I tried so hard not to ever be exactly for what you're saying.
0: And did was, this friend know what you had gone through previously? She knew
1: my upbringing, but not to the level, like I didn't even really know any, I hadn't done any of that, that processing yet in terms of like, there was this story that was in my mind that girls were just not allowed to show anger. And when I asked my family later on, my adopted family, why did you send me to therapy and not my brother? They were like, oh, well, you were acting out like you would go set the table and you'd throw these, you'd like, you know, slam the fork on the table. And I'm like, well, he was getting into fights at school. So he was mad too. So why would you send me to therapy and not him? And she was like, well, boys just kind of figure it out. So you see the problem in that mindset. Mm -hmm. But that's the mindset that I adopted. And it's the mindset that was like, oh, girls aren't supposed to be mad. I'm not supposed to be mad, but I am mad, so I'm wrong.
0: Such a inner, inner dialogue conflict.
1: There was a lot of dissonance. And I think that to, to me, I look at that apathy that I was talking about in my 20s as kind of like a collision of that, of like between what I was feeling And this story about what I thought I was supposed to be feeling or be, and those two were not congruent. And so that incongruency made me feel it made me personalize it and add moral judgment on myself in terms of like, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I'm supposed to be feeling. They are very different. So you are effed up. Mm -hmm. No wonder your family sent you to therapy and not him. He has it figured out. You don't have it figured out. That was the internal
0: dialogue. Did you ever end up having conversations with your brother about I guess coping and healing through that and how you both did it so differently?
1: Well, you can kind of see the result of what that happened too, because my brother will not have a conversation about our childhood ever. Oh wow. He the way that he went with it, so I went into this kind of internal, you know, wreck. And the way that my brother dealt with it, like I said earlier, is he just started working and decided that he was going to save and work and make enough money so that he would never rely on anybody again. And that's what he did.
0: And so he almost became like a workaholic. He
1: He works really hard. He parties really hard and he will not talk about it to anybody, to anybody. I mean, his girlfriend he's been with his girlfriend for six years and we went out to have dinner a couple months ago and I said something about my childhood and she was like, what? She had no idea. They were together for six years and she had no idea about what it was like when we were kids.
0: Wow. And he had, was
1: sitting there and he let me talk to her, but he, I was shocked that, that she had no idea. Like you would think behind, you know, closed doors in a relationship, you would share that stuff. But he closed off and he dealt with it the way that he dealt with it.
0: Hmm. So he just closed off in a different way, whereas you closed off inside yourself. He,
1: he kind of went out into the world and made his own. He's, he's very angry and he, he, that's kind of how he moves out in the world. And for me, we both have rage issues. Mine was much more internalized. His is external which seems to me to be kind of a, a fitting you know, boy-girl uh, expression of those two things, or masculine-feminine, I'll say, not boy-girl, but masculine-feminine expression of those things. Um, but, yeah, mine was internal rage. So mine was really strong inner critic. It was self-destruction.
0: Hmm. And so even to this day, he has never seen a therapist or anything – of that sort? No. Wow. Yeah. And, and you think about it, when you think about my childhood, it just,
1: it, it wasn't presented to him, even though when they sent me to therapy when I was a child, I I looked at it that as an example of like, oh, or evidence of, I must be the one that's wrong here, because I'm the only one in the family that's going to therapy right now. Like, this happened to all of us, but I'm the only one that's being sent, so... What I realize now as an adult is because I am the type of person that wanted answers. I wanted somebody to talk to me about what was going on. I need to process things. And that was very difficult for them. They didn't know what to do with me. And so they sent me to this therapist. And my brother wasn't, even though he was acting out, out in the world, he was getting into fights out in the world. He wasn't causing problems in the home because he too knew that he had to survive in this house. Right. He, too, didn't want to go to an orphanage, which is something that was, you know, mentioned once in a while.
0: It's so interesting to me how multiple people can experience the same thing within the same family and how they heal or maybe don't heal and kind of work through all of this stuff that that comes with.
1: You know, it's so fat. It is fascinating. I love the idea of I love like hearing siblings talk about their childhood. I think one of the things that I really I've had a really hard time with in my life to let go of is how much I wanted that kind of relationship with my brother. We are as close as we can get, um, given how he is and what he's available for but how much in my life i wanted to be able to process our childhood with him and hear his perspective because he was a little bit older and he had to deal a lot more with my mom. So even though he was just 20 months older than I was, he was staying home from school and taking care of her because one day we came home from school. My dad wasn't there. We did not have a lot of money. So there was nobody really, you know, a nurse would come in and check in once in a while, but there, there was, should have been somebody staying with her, but we came home one day and she had fallen off of her, Uh, wheelchair. And she had, you know, wet herself because she'd been there for hours, because she wasn't strong enough to lift her back up in the wheelchair. So my brother and I had to put her back in. And after that, he refused to go to school. So he stayed with her a lot. And I would love to hear him share with me more about that. And so in that moment, he kind of became more of my father figure, even though he was you know, he was only nine himself, but he made sure that I went to school. He picked me up from my friend's house. You know, he'd walk over a friend's house, pick me up and walk me home. So he really took on that role. And so we had, even though we grew up in the same house, we had very different experiences and I would love to be able to process those with him, but that is just not something that he's interested in.
0: Do you think there might be a time where it might happen?
1: No, I don't, unfortunately. I mean, no. I don't think that's true. I mean, I'm always open to it. I'm available for it. I just don't know that he ever will be.
0: And taking a couple steps back, you had mentioned that when you did talk therapy, at first he had asked how you were feeling in your body and you didn't understand what that meant. At what point did you find therapy to be beneficial? Or did you find it to be beneficial? Well, I'll tell you, I went to therapy a lot. So
1: I did it when I was a child, you know, when my family sent me, I went again in high school. Um, I was sent to therapy again in high school and that was horrible. The, the therapist literally fell asleep in one of our sessions. It was actually the first session that I actually spoke about my mom because I was so reserved about this topic and in the middle of that the therapist fell asleep during the, in that session can you believe it
0: like actually fell asleep
1: actually fell asleep wow. and so after that i decided okay i'm not going to tell anybody anything anymore because it was such a rejection of my experience because it was the first time i was actually saying you know what i think that i think i'm not happy and he fell asleep during that session and so something in me shut down where i was just like screw this guy And my family's making me go again, because I, you know, I had been doing a bunch of drugs at that point. They didn't know it. They just knew that there was something going on with me. And so they sent me back. And then, you know, I get this guy who falls asleep. And so I just started telling him made up stories. (laughs) And then I did that for about a year. And then in my 20s, I went back after jumping out of the airplane. And so I worked with him for a couple years. But really what he, it went from talk therapy, because he was also a yoga teacher. So Very quickly, it went from talk therapy to more about meditation and movement, which was much more um, effective for me. And then in terms of processing my own experience, I found coaching to be much more effective because they can really get involved in the conversation with you, a little bit more direct about how they're feeling. So this is where I started really doing shadow work is with a coach, Um, probably in my early thirties is when that started. And that's where I felt like everything started to change for me is the combination of yoga. And then looking at the stories that I had about myself and what I was allowing myself to be and not allowed to be.
0: And what did the shadow therapy work look like? Is it, is there kind of a standard way of doing that or is it different for everybody based on the shadow?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to make sure that it, it wasn't shadow therapy So um, you could go to um, like a Jungian analyst or some therapists have some background in shadow work. Not all of them do. The coach that I went to in particular, I had just started reading some books on the shadow because I was really fascinated by this idea that um, there was just stuff about myself that I didn't know. And I I was dying to find something that made me not hate myself so much. Like, I just hated myself because everything I felt about who I was was wrong. And so what I was so fascinated with with shadow stuff was taking the parts of us that we feel like are wrong and really looking at it with a much gentler eye and understanding that they're not actually wrong. We just have some story of something that happened back when we were kids that made it think we were wrong. But mm-hmm. we're not. And so this coach, he wasn't specifically a shadow coach, but I had been reading all these books that he had recommended and he so we kind of talked through it that way. And then from there, I really went into a deep self-study of it. And so the stuff that would come out that I would come up with in the in the books, I would then process with him. And we did that for a year and a half.
0: And that's where you felt the most healing happen for you.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that it was in a vacuum like that. It was definitely a progressive period, but yeah. So I was doing yoga very deeply um, studying with a couple teachers pretty deeply and then doing this shadow work, the shadow process. And so the combination of those two things was pretty much my entire thirties. And now I just see the world through the shadow filter and, and we all have shadows and we all have hundreds of shadows and I still have shadows. It's not like it's something that you ever fully get rid of. I mean, you don't entirely know yourself 100%. There's a lot going on in our psyche. And so I've come up with this methodology because it's really hard to see into parts of yourself that you don't know. And so I came up with this methodology for myself. It's this this process that I go through, this step-by-step process that I go through for how to find shadows, how to find these parts of myself that are working against me. And so that's what I teach. And I I do this online program um, twice a year. And I teach the process for doing that. And then the first step to it is where's the friction? So friction happens, repetitive friction, not just like, you know, you have one fight with a friend, but like, do you have constant communication breakdown? Are you always dating the same type of person and it's unhealthy and not feeling well? Do you keep spending all your money, like things that are where there's constant, repetitive friction, you can start to do this process for uncovering what is it that I don't know about myself that I need to know that is causing me to make, keep up with this pattern that's not serving me.
0: Was there anything else along kind of your journey that helped you understand yourself better and work through all of this stuff? Um, can you ask that again (laughs) was there like I know some people in kind of their healing or trying to uncover who they are and more about themselves kind of go to like nature or medication or support groups did you ever have any of that or was it mostly just the shadow work and then yoga
1: I mean, I've done a lot. I've done a lot. So I, I, you know, went to school for psychology and then I did a coaching program, which was a very in-depth, um, self study. And I did four years of yoga training. And, um, so I've done a lot of workshops and I've worked with a lot of teachers very intimately on, you know, my self-development. Uh, and I continue it really in teaching, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, as a teacher, you continue to learn through seeing and hearing other people's process. Like, I'm sure you learn so much about yourself in these conversations with other people, I would imagine. And it's the same type of thing with teaching. So I, I think my life is pretty much an ongoing self-study.
0: I, I can definitely say that I do learn both a lot about myself and a lot about just kind of mental health and trauma and the like. And I know I've had a lot of, well, not a lot, but I've had several guests who have talked about kind of the inner child work or the, the shadows. And it just, it sends me kind of down the rabbit hole to look into those things for myself. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. I, and people have come to me and they're, they're like, you know, if they see a write-up that I did or an article or, you know, something I post on Instagram and they'll contact me and they'll be like, God, I can tell that I need to do this work, but it's super scary. And I think that it can seem really intimidating when you start to go down this path of like, because most, a lot of shadows are parts of ourselves that we don't like. I don't want to, you know, if I come across the liar in me, I don't want to admit I'm a liar. I don't want to say that out in the world. And if there's some, you know, like needy to me was the most, the worst possible thing. If a boyfriend said, God, you're being really needy right now. Or a girlfriend said it joking, like you're being really needy right now. It would be so triggering for me. It was the worst possible thing that I could be. And I would, I could continue to get haunted by that throughout my life. Or I can stop and take a look at why do I hate needy so much? And when I see, oh, here's my childhood, and this is why, because it was, I was not allowed to be needy. There was no space for that. It was the worst thing that you could be. You had to be self-reliant. But now, as an adult, is it that much of a problem? I think it's more of a problem not to express your needs to the people you're in relationship with because they don't know what to do with you otherwise. Why not have that clarity? So coming to a place where you... Not You recognize, I actually am needy and I'm self-reliant. I can be both of those things simultaneously. And that's when we talk about the wholeness of us is understanding and embracing the duality and the multi-layers of who we are instead of holding ourselves to only being one kind of person and then being disappointed when we represent another kind. And so I understand that it can be an intimidating thing to look at But the end result is freedom from the inner critic. It's being more comfortable in your skin. It's being able to sit with somebody in vulnerability and not wanting to scratch your skin off or run out of the room really quickly of allowing space for actual emotional intimacy to happen between you and another person. Because now you're not terrified to let them see that part of you.
0: See, when you word it that way, it sounds, it makes me want to continue the healing and the, the healing journey. But then when you actually look into the work, it's like, whoa, this is scary.
1: <laughs> I know it can be so scary. And I, and I think, and I get that. And especially in the context of what I'm talking about, like shadow stuff can be really scary to look into, because what I'm asking you to do when we do that is like, look at, and i wouldn't do it this directly but look at what you judge most about yourself and i think what i think the person that was developed in me what this whole process has has designed me to be as a person is someone who really can someone else can feel comfortable being with me in that space like because i i like to remind people we are doing this so that we can find lightness, like lightness of being in ourselves. This heaviness that you feel, this heaviness that we put on ourselves, but we're doing this so that we don't have to hold that anymore. We can find a lighter way of being and a more comfortable way of being. And so I think part of the beautiful thing about doing shadow work, which I didn't have as much except for that year and a half with the coach, is being in a container. And that's what my membership is for. You're in a container with people who are doing the same work. So we're all kind of like arm in arm doing it together. And I'm constantly reminding people like, let's figure out how to make this light too. We're joking. We're um, being loving. We're supporting each other. And so it doesn't have to be like, let's go look at this scary, crazy monster of who I am and then have to sit and deal with that. It's like, let's do it in a container that feels really supported because I do not recommend people doing shadow work with just anybody. Like if you start to discover shadows about yourself, like say you and I were working together and you started to uncover this part of yourself that you didn't like, I would advise you not to really talk about it with everybody because you don't know what somebody's going to say that's going to knock it in deeper for you and make you feel more shame around it. So you're talking to me, maybe you have, you know, I'm inviting you to find a couple people that you trust. And really what I recommend is people who have done a lot of work themselves, because people that have not done a lot of work are not always the safest people to share that stuff with yet. You might be able to at some point, but when you're in the kind of trenches of it to really choose your people wisely.
0: I'm, I'm really glad you said that. Just in some of the other episodes that I have had guests on, they've talked a lot about um, just like healing and how they did it in different modalities, but never once did they mention to be hyper aware, I guess, of who's around or what they're saying or what you're selling them. So I really, I really think that's a huge. Piece that you shared is being aware of who is supporting and who is just around you while you're doing the work. Yeah, because I mean, some of the the thing is is like the shadows are created based
1: on who you think other people are going to accept in you, right? Like, how are other people going to accept me? And I somewhere in my mind, I think, oh, if I'm this person, that I won't be accepted. And so when we start to uncover these parts. We have years and years, our whole lifetime of telling ourselves these parts are unacceptable. And so now I'm going to bring them to the forefront. And so the people around you are very invested in in you being a certain way. And and, and I don't mean that to sound negative, but we all have our dynamic, right? And so if you're around people who haven't done a certain amount of self-work themselves, your doing self work is going to challenge that relationship in some ways, and so if you have people around you that have done a lot of self work, usually they understand the space that is needed, and the compassion and the listening more than advising space that is needed for you to uh, process things the way that you're processing them.
0: Wow, I like that's. It, it's just so important to hear that reminder and maybe, yeah. maybe to just share it to those that haven't had that reminder or don't see it in that frame. It's just a, maybe a bit of a mindset switch. Yeah. Um, and I, I can speak to that too in terms of fully experiencing that where I started therapy and started kind of working through all of my traumas and childhood stuff And at the time when I had started, I was dating somebody who didn't believe in any of that and had a lot of friends who weren't at the point where they wanted to do that or cared to do that. So it definitely puts a lot – I feel like it puts even more pressure on you to try to be a different way in relationships once you're going through that. And then you're not just being your authentic self, in my experience anyways.
1: Well, yeah. And then it's like the whole reason those shadows were created is because it was a feeling of wrongness, right? And so then if you're surrounded by people who are not and not wanting you to change or uncover that kind of stuff, it can make you feel even more wrong. And so like I said, this is not putting them down. I'm not saying that at all. But but I think it also kind of leads into why therapists and coaches exist. Like if you're going through some some big stuff, your friends and family are there and you definitely want to be able to talk to them, but you don't want to dump all your stuff on them either. Like there's a, there's a reason that why we pay. I know some people have a problem with this. Like, Oh, I don't want to pay somebody to listen to me, but it's like, you're paying this person to be invested in what you're going through right now on your behalf, 150%. So they, their opinion is not going to be a part of it. And and also you're kind of doing a favor to the people around you because like I, I have a friend who doesn't want to go to therapy, but is going through a lot of stuff and her friends are very depleted by it. And so in some ways it's kind of like your friends want to be there for you, but also pay for a therapist or a coach and somebody who is there to take on the real weight of this stuff. So that when you're having a conversation with your family and friends, you can share with them from a place of what you're processing if you care to do that, but not make them responsible for it, if that makes sense. I don't know if it
0: does. It does. It's kind of shifting the shifting the topics and conversations to those that have more experience in handling that and not putting it all on loved ones is yes. kind of what I understood. Yeah.
1: Yep. That's a great way of saying it.
0: Do you have any other words of encouragement or words of wisdom or knowledge to share just surrounding, I guess, the healing journey, the healing conversation and and all the shadow work?
1: Yeah, I think when I first started doing shadow work, I was like, oh, great, I'm going to use this and make myself perfect because I'm totally broken right now. And so I used it as this modality to fix Like it was that fix mode that I was in and I was so aggressively going after shadows of mine to try to like, you know, integrate them so that I could finally feel better about myself. And it took me a while and and a certain level of maturity to just see that I don't have to deal with it all at once. I only need to come with it, deal with it as it comes up. I can take periods of breaks. I can take periods of like when I have the mental and emotional space for it to look into stuff like this, and then I can walk away from it for a little while. And so for me, what I find to be most helpful is to have that container where it's like, okay, I can go to this container when stuff comes up I know, I learned this process of how to work with it. And then now I'm going to work with it for a little while, but then I'm just going to go live my life for a little bit. And then something comes up and then I go back to it. You know, so it's okay to not have to be in the trenches all the time.
0: I like that. I I feel like when I first started therapy years and years ago, I felt like it was almost, and maybe this was the therapist too, partly, but I felt like it was kind of an all or nothing adventure, (laughs) if you will. I think it's treated like that a lot. It it almost, like, at least up here in Canada – in my area of Canada, I guess in Ontario, I get the sense that a lot of, a lot of people that use therapy or coaches or anything of the like, it, it's almost like they're taught or told that they need to go to therapy and do all the things, work through everything, be completely healed or fixed or whatever it is they see themselves as. And you can't stop therapy until you get that point.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I entered that realm in my early 30s. I really wanted to do all this self-work because I had just, my relationship had blown up. I left this career. Everybody was like, why did you leave that career? It was the stupidest thing to do. Like I completely blew my life up. I was engaged to, you know, the man that I was with for 11 years. I broke that off. Like everything just basically went to, you know, the gutters. And I decided that I was just going to go fix myself that it was me that was broken. I'm going to fix myself. And so I went at it super aggressively. And then I finally found this coach who, you know, gave me a better container and a better perspective for how to approach it, which was a lot gentler. And so even though I was going into this, you know, shadow stuff, which can be very intense, it's one of those things like dive in the water and then come up for air and then go like bask in the sun on the beach for a while. And then when you have the space, go back into the depths of the water, right? (laughs) Like, so you can do it. And so the way that I found is having that container, a resource to go to where it's like, okay, the system's already set up. So they like for me and, you know, my clients and my students, I've already designed the whole system so they can dip in, work the process for a little while and then move out of it for a while and then come back. So it's something that it's like a, a system that works that you, you have access to. So you don't have to do all the heavy lifting so much on your own and then go and bask in the sun for a little while, live life for a little while and then come back when you're ready or when you need to.
0: That sounds a lot more realistic.
1: <laughs> and, and a little gentle. <laughs> like we don't have to, I mean, the whole point, the whole point is to feel better right? The whole point is to feel like for me, the point was, I just want to enjoy my life. I just want to be able to do things for pleasure. And so if I'm in the deep, dark trenches all the time, which I was for a while, I remember at one point just being like, every, this shit is miserable. I'm more miserable than I was before. Okay, Mm -hmm. great. I know all this stuff about myself, but I'm miserable. And so that's when I really realized like, oh, the point, why am I doing this? It's because I want to enjoy myself. I want to be able to laugh, genuinely laugh and feel joy and go experience things and be able to be in the moment and not always be um, distracted by the self-hate narrative in my mind. And so when I realized that, it's like, okay, well, part of that means also just living your life and going out and doing that and putting that to practice as well.
0: I think I'm going to steal that that little uh, tip and wisdom for my own healing journey. <laughs> uh,
1: exactly what? What it, part of that?
0: Well, just the whole you don't need to be in therapy until every single thing has been quote unquote fixed or dealt with. Yeah. Because I I can be the first to admit to that I had that mindset kind of when I initially started therapy years ago, and I, I can also admit, though, on the other hand, that I never was truly consistent, <laughs> um, and maybe it's because I kind of was doing what you had mentioned about, you know, dip into it and then go bathe and then go live life and come back. I feel like that's kind of what I was doing when I wasn't necessarily consistent with the therapy sessions, but I also... I I just, I feel like there's a, a story that we're all told that in order to be the best version of yourself and to be better, quote unquote, you need to do all the therapy all at once and deal with everything. And so I'm going to, I'm going to take the tip from you saying to do a little bit, go live life and then kind of cycle through it that way. I, I love that.
1: And on the flip side of that, I do think that there is a big value in working deeply with someone and the same person, because I think what can happen is you can work with somebody and then you start to get to a point where it's like, oh, this is getting into some real deep stuff. Okay, you know what? Now's the time I'm going to go bask in the sun for a while, right? So there's also that where it could be, there's a little bit of an avoidant tactic. For you, it sounds like you've been in therapy for a while and you're doing that. And that's kind of not what I'm talking about. But just I mention that only for listeners, just because I think that at some point, it is important to be able to go deep and for a long period of time with somebody.
0: I also think, though, I might also have been doing it slightly out of avoidance. <laughs> Say that again. I think I might also have been doing that slightly out of avoidance as well. In what um, way? Well, just that I, well, in the earlier years of starting therapy, I had this phenomenal therapist and then she all of a sudden moved across the country, which I don't blame her. That's, you know, life happens, but she had moved across across the country and then, so obviously she wasn't going to be my therapist anymore. And so I was kind of bounced around in that company to other therapists and I could never jive with them I never felt the connection I never never felt like I could be open with them and actually share things with them Mm -hmm. and so I feel like once I started uh I guess having the connection or feeling that I could share things I almost started to have an avoidance factor where okay I have this connection I can talk about these things I can tell them but let's avoid talking about that. And let's go do something else. And we'll come back to therapy when you want to talk about it. And then I would leave, I would do this session, I would leave for a couple weeks, couple months. Sometimes there's a couple of years in between. And then I would come back to the same person and say, Okay, I'm ready to talk about it. But as soon as it got into the harder stuff, I like pulled back. So I definitely have avoidance as a Unhealthy coping mechanism, too.
1: <laughs> well, it seems like that would be a good topic to talk to them about, too, right? Is, is Because I think a, a lot of it is, like, we don't really know what a lot of our tendencies are. I, I remember going to a therapist once, and uh, she specialized in, in women who whose mothers died really early on in life. And in the, conver- in the conversation, I realized that I thought I got out of this, like... Scott free. There was this story in my mind that like, yeah, I could see, I could see what happened to my brother and I could see how her death and her childhood damaged my brother in some ways, but I didn't really see it in myself. And so I had to, I asked her to start telling me when I was doing things that seemed typical of someone who lost their mother as a child. And I was so shocked by some of her answers and what she would point out. And so a long way to, to kind of respond to what you're saying is, I think the whole point of going to a therapist is to ha- or even a coach is to have them reflect things that you're not aware of. I mean, they're helping you see into yourself in a way that you've never seen before. So I think it, it, it's one of those things where you could say to your therapist, I'm trying to figure out when I'm being avoidant and when I really need to take a break. And I was hoping that you could help me figure that out.
0: That's, that sounds like the responsible, <laughs> proper way to do it.
1: <laughs> I don't think there's a right or wrong way. But I do think it's like if you're engaging in that relationship, part of it is, is so that they can start reflecting things back to you and letting you see into kind of your habits or patterns that aren't serving.
0: I, I mean, I, that makes total sense. And did you say that you have a background in psychology?
1: Uh, no, I only have an undergrad in psychology, so I'm not a therapist. Okay,
0: it still shows, though. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, oh, I've done a that. lot. I've done a lot in this world, and I've been coaching for 14 years, and um, I've been teaching about the shadow for uh, you know about that amount of time. And I teach yoga. Specifically, the yoga that I teach is a, is not like the kind of yoga that you usually see in the media. It's a very slow yoga that is specifically designed for deepening body awareness. So we'll spend time, a lot of time on the floor stretching, but it's going to be slow movement. I'll invite I'm inviting people into what's the sensation you feel in your hip right now. And when you move from this pose to this pose, how does that sensation change? And so, so th- uh, through like an hour and a half class or an hour class, there's not a huge amount of movement, but afterwards you feel like you did a lot because I'm asking you to pay such close attention to the felt sense of your body. And so, uh, you know, I've been really doing this, this work for a while, very in-depth, and it's something I do full-time.
0: And I guess that leads me into how listeners can find you and connect with you and possibly work with you.
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. So uh, my website is liminalspace.net, Liminalspace.net. space.net that's dot net. and essentially it's an online yoga studio so people can drop in and take classes with me um, virtually it, everything's on the internet and so I don't I do some in-person stuff here but most of my stuff is online and then I also teach a, a program called shadow alchemy I do that online twice a year and that is essentially introducing this this methodology and this concept of the shadow and so we're doing yoga um they have access to my yoga studio while they're in the program and then we're doing group meetings and then you have um an option of doing one-on-one coaching with me during the process so i'm essentially teaching you how to look at yourself in in a different light and seeing how the stories that you created um as a child are feeding into your life now and starting to expand and 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 illuminate the different sides of ourselves that we're um, avoiding or not seeing that could really be serving us right now, serving us or hurting us right now. And so um, people can drop in and take a yoga class with me. You can, um, if you sign up for my newsletter, if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, I send a free uh, pre recorded video, a shadow alchemy yoga class. You can take the class, um, this pre recorded class, and just kind of get a sense. For what the yoga classes are like and then if you you know want to talk to me about potentially doing the shadow alchemy program or doing some sort of shadow work with me you can reach um set up something with me through my website
0: That sounds. Oh, and i'm also on instagram
1: at liminal hyphen at liminal space hyphen net okay i'm sorry not hyphen underscore <laughs> liminal space underscore net on instagram
0: and where are you most active? Is it Instagram that you're mostly on?
1: Instagram and my newsletter. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for asking.
0: Well, I'm going to go take a peek at your all your things. Okay, but great. before I do that, I wanted to thank you for being a guest and for sharing your, I guess your vulnerabilities in in your experience and the reality that you experienced and just for being open and willing to have the conversation that not a lot of people want to have, but we need to continue the conversation. So I wanted to thank you
1: Thank for, you so for, for all of
0: those. Been. Absolutely. And I hope that we can stay connected and I will, like I said, definitely take a peek at all your offerings and your wealth of knowledge that is on your website and your Instagram. And I'm sure some of the listeners will as well.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here.
0: Absolutely. And thank you again for being a guest. And until next time, I'm sending you, Catherine, and the listeners lots of love and lots of light.